0: one morning while making the rounds
1: I took the shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down I went right home and I went to
2: bed I stuck at loving 44 beneath my head
0: Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun I took the shot of cocaine and away I run
1: made a good run but
2: I Right, the man in black kicking things off for us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dropping by, uh, sharing a part of your week with me as we are talking hunt and fishing. The great outdoors and all that implies. This is episode number 558. I can't believe uh, it's been, what, 11 or 12 years? Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> that is for sure. And we had a lot of fun. Uh, Over the holidays, uh, Henry and I went out to the deer lease. And as y'all know, he's been practicing like heck with that 22-250. Got him on a nice white tail doe. Made a great shot. It rained all weekend, uh, but that was okay. The animals didn't seem to care. Actually, I think it helped. And we're going to talk a lot about hunting in the rain today. More on that in a minute. Uh, But yeah, Henry got a doe. He was so excited. Dropped her in her tracks. I ended up taking a nice buck. Uh, and uh got on a hog a big big boar as well, so we had a great time came back and unfortunately, that covid bug got me uh haven't really had any you know severe symptoms or anything uh just kind of like a little cold and chills for a day and a half other than that. I felt fine, so it sucks. the kids had to you know they couldn't go to school wife has to stay home from work for two weeks, and uh she resign me to staying in the office or in the bedroom. Don't get to hug on the kids, uh, but they're sweet. They've been slipping me cards underneath the door telling me they hope I feel better. I don't feel bad though. That's the thing. (laughs) Just uh, what a mess. What a mess. But anyway, we've got a great show lined up for you. So you know what to do by now. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat up old Stanley thermos. Grab that stool, pull it up a little closer to the campfire because... Off the top, we're going to talk hunting in the rain with Deer and Deer Hunting, well, it used to be magazine, now it's kind of a, just a media company that focuses on all things white deer hunting, and Dan Schmidt will be here to talk about hunting in the rain. Because I think a lot of folks just uh, don't mess with it, which is a big mistake, uh, in my opinion, and certainly is evidenced by what Henry and I saw last weekend. So we're talking whitetails with Dan. Then we'll be joined by Brad Dabbert of the Quail Tech Alliance. Uh, Our friends over at Park City's Quail hooked us up with Brad, and uh, we've got a lot of stuff to get into regarding Bob White research and current projects that Quail Tech is working on, Uh, some that I find very interesting as far as supplemental feeding, also predator management uh just a couple of the things that i know we'll hit on today with brad so looking forward to that as man, just the nostalgia of upland hunting and specifically the gentlemanly sport of quail hunting is something that uh i really gravitate towards can't i love talking about it can't get enough of it uh so that's what's on the docket for today gonna be a good one let's do a uh let's do a quick giveaway here before we take a break I've got a box, and, of course, this means you've got to have a .22-250. But I've got a box of the uh, double-tap, 55 grain 22250 bullets. Uh, they're nozzler ballistic tips. This is the bullet Henry dropped his doe with, like, boom, right in her tracks, hammered her. I was really surprised at uh, just how lethal such a small-grain bullet could be. Uh, but you make a good shot, and that's what he did. Anyway, uh, ammo is really tough to find right now. This is the DT Hunter from Double Tap Ammunition, and we're going to give a box away. So just email the, well, it's numbers. Let's just say 22250 into Lone Star Show at gmail.com, and you'll be entered to win the box of ammo. Imagine that people giving ammo away in a state of pandemonium where no one can find ammo. (laughs) We're going to do it today. Um, Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Dan Schmidt of Deer and Deer Hunting right here on STI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. She bought stuff that didn't sell last Christmas or hadn't sold since who knows when. Damaged goods and used displays in the discontinued bin. We loved how she thought about us. It'd kill her if anyone was missed. You knew if you were friend or family, you were on Mary Lou's Christmas list. Texas Premium Power Sports is one of the largest pre-owned dealers in Texas. They specialize in sales of pre-owned ATVs and UTVs, many of which come fully accessorized. They also have a full service and repair center for most major brands and offer financing with a 500 credit score or better. They'll even finance parts and accessories such as high racks, roofs, and wheel and tire combos. Visit texaspremiumpowersports.com or check them out on Instagram at texas underscore premium underscore powersports. That's texaspremiumpowersports.com. With city life seemingly getting crazier by the minute, the thought of moving out to the country is looking more appealing than ever. And Foster Farm and Ranch has been recognized as one of the nation's top ranch brokerages the past two years. They have listings in 22 counties and counting and are truly a statewide entity. Foster represents buyers and sellers from all walks of life. Farmers, ranchers, hunters, doctors, lawyers, investors, and possibly you. You can find them on Facebook, Foster Farm & Ranch, or Instagram, at Foster Ranch Sales. Of course, fosterfarmerandranch.com, the website, or call chat at 830-776-3605. like nothing you
1: Got the whole world running for the river trying to wash itself clean. And I hope that all is well, far as I can tell. It might do us some good to spend some time healing ourselves, get where we
0: used
2: to be.
3: <laughs> That's a little bad bowler.
2: Quarantine, the name of that one. Highly appropriate since I'm quarantine. coming to you from the quarantine studio. Uh, Cablesmith here with you. Thank you for tuning in to SEI's World Star Outdoor show as we're about to talk some white-tailed deer hunting, specifically during precipitation. Don't throw in the towel. Don't sit there and watch football. Get off your hiney. Get out there in the rain. As long as it's not a torrential downpour, good things are going to happen. Uh, but we'll get into that with Deer and Deer Hunting's Dan Schmidt momentarily. This segment brought to you by SCI. And uh, one thing I saw in their newsletter this week, which I think is really cool, is SCI is petitioning the uh, Department of the Interior to close this loophole in, like, the importing process. If they issue you an import permit for an animal, wouldn't you think you could have it in your possession? Not so fast. The anti-hunters say that you shouldn't be. It doesn't mean you can have it. It just means you can bring it into the country. What? I don't, that doesn't even make sense, right? We're living in a clown world, but, you know, that's the mindset of these anti-hunting factions and corrupt politicians that want to ban hunting altogether. Uh, So SCI steps in because they care about your right as a hunter. and They care about educating the non-hunting public as well. Um, For more info or to join SCI, go to safariclub.org. We'd love to have you. And with that being said, let's talk some whitetail deer. It is my pleasure to welcome Deer and Deer Hunting's Dan Schmidt to the show.
3: Thank you, Cable. I'm glad to be on with you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Um, So glad to hear you're feeling better. Uh, Like I was just telling you off the air, I got a positive COVID test um, uh, Tuesday and, like, Monday, I started feeling a little crummy, uh, body aches and stuff. Tuesday, just real tired. Only got, like, a 99.5-degree fever. And then by Wednesday morning, dude, I felt I feel great. So uh, it hasn't, you know, put me out of commission like it has a lot of other people. Uh, the flu, in my opinion, has been was a lot worse. Which I know you haven't been feeling that great either. So we're kind of on the yeah. same page here. No, uh, I'm
1: glad you're doing okay. I don't have COVID. I I was worried. Obviously, I was supposed to travel to Kansas here this week, and I had a fever that day, and they won't let you travel if you. And so I was worried. I don't have it. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um. But I'm glad you're doing okay. And I, my heart just goes out to everybody uh, out there who's dealing with this because I know it's across the country. And it's something uh, not to be taken lightly. There's uh, a lot of scary stories that we've been seeing uh, personally and hearing about as well. Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, and you know, the kids now can't go to school for two weeks and wife's out of work. I work out of the house, so it's not that big of a deal for me. But, you know, it puts a strain on, on all that stuff, um, certainly. Um, but let's talk about something more exciting than being sick. Let's talk a little deer hunting. Um, what do you do exactly at uh, Deer and Deer Hunting?
1: Deer and Deer Hunting Cable. I've been here for well, it's going on 26 years now. I'm I'm the vice president of the company, which is Media 360, but uh, we do other things. But uh, Deer and Deer Hunting is our main. Uh, I, I didn't want to, it. Used to be a magazine. That's what basically started the whitetail industry back in the 70s. Right. Uh, we have the TV show uh, shows. We have several of them on Pursuit Channel. We've got our website. We've got our YouTube page. Our social media platform. Uh, We do other magazines. Uh, It's basically everything you can think about deer hunting, uh, media-wise: TV, print, digital, online videos—you name it. And uh, there's only I think nine of us here, so um, I got my hands in on all of it.
3: Okay, and and where are you based out of?
1: We're based out of um, uh, Central (laughs) Wisconsin-ish. I I always say Northeast Wisconsin. We're about now if you're from Dallas, kind of sort of. I know you're in McKinney, but yeah. uh, the, my my best friend li- uh, lived in McKinney for 25 years, by the way. Uh, oh, right on. Yeah, he. Uh, but uh, I'm just about an hour west of Green Bay, so I think anybody down there knows where Green Bay is.
3: Yes, indeed. Okay.
1: <laughs> so.
3: Yeah, not my not my favorite football team, but. Yeah. Uh, I figured.
1: As much. <laughs> I figured. Yeah. We've
3: run into the pack a couple times in the playoffs recently, so.
1: Just a, just a few times. Yep.
3: Yeah. 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 Um, well what i want to talk about today is uh deer hunting in the rain and but i guess before we do that how is your how's your season been so far
1: uh, season is up until now has been uh great actually i've uh i've enjoyed a lot of success i think i've i shot at least ten deer i've shot uh, some nice bucks i just got back from illinois but i've uh, th- are uh, i'm blessed i get to travel for this job a little bit and i've i've hunted at four different states this year i've been seeing some really um, tremendous uh, activity across the country this year, and I've been able to enjoy it. But uh, I have a lot of venison in the freezer and a lot of good memories as well.
3: Right on, awesome. Well, we uh, we got our first two whitetail on the ground this past weekend. My son and I headed out to the uh, lease after the Thanksgiving super spreader. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know we had a guy's trip and um, it was nice to get away with him and and. You know, quarantine initially gave us the opportunity. He's seven, by the way, um, but he came to me and said, "Dad, I want to shoot a deer." Uh, this was, I guess, right after the season ended last year, and he'd sat in the blind with me a bunch. And he's been, he's seen me take a whitetail buck before, um, and he he said that. And I, as you know, I do this for a living. I've never wanted to push that on him. I wanted him to yeah. come and say, "I'm ready to do this. I want to do this." So, so he did, and so we practiced a lot with. Um, I gave him my 22-250. That's about all he could handle at seven years old. Um, And we practiced and practiced, and he ended up shooting a black buck doe, an exotic, um, this summer at Buddy's place and shot her in the neck and dropped her. And so I was like, okay, he's ready for a whitetail. Um, I was a little skeptical about the 55-grain bullet on, you know, 140-pound, 150-pound whitetail doe. But we, uh, we headed out there, and unfortunately, I looked at the... The radar and was like, man, this it's calling for 80% chance of rain all day Saturday and same thing on, on Sunday morning. So I was a little bummed about that. Um, but it, it ended up being, I think, it played to our advantage. And I've, I really have more experience hunting elk. You know, in the mountains, um, it's going to rain a lot in September. Yep. And so I've hunted elk quite a bit in the rain and I've hunted ducks in the rain and it doesn't really seem to affect the ducks unless it's just a downpour. but. The elk bed down, and as soon as the rain stops, they're fired up. Bugles, you know, resume, and it's game on. Um, deer, I've, I've hunted some in the rain, um, and I've got a ton of pictures and videos of them moving around in the rain. So even though my expectations were tempered just a little bit, you know, I knew if, if it started pouring, they'd, they'd move around. Um, but it never really did start pouring. It, it was just kind of a constant light rain drizzle. That just was, it was relentless, but, you know, never really poured. And, and I'll tell you, we saw animals moving all weekend long. I mean, just out of the woodwork. Deer, hogs, you name it, coyotes. Um, and so I think the rain actually increased the movement.
1: Yeah, sounds about right.
3: Yeah. And you've written a piece on this, um, which we'll get into. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a guy, um, I think from your, actually from your part of the world up there. Um, his name, I think. Uh, let me check here. But uh, his name is uh, John Eberhart, and in his book Precision Bow Hunting, he said that 30% of their mature buck sightings occur when there's a light rain or snow, and that's significant. Yes. That's a lot.
1: Yes, and uh, John's one of the best, uh, and he hunts public land almost exclusively, not exclusively, but a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, he is uh, just a wealth of knowledge. But that's spot on on what what you read by John and what you experienced personally, um, you know, and I have written articles about it. Uh, we've had, we've actually done TV shows about it. Um, some my online videos on our YouTube page are there as well. But the the thing with rain is, you know, animals have to live in that year round. And I think what a lot of hunters do is they kind of get hung up on how does this affect you as a person and how would you feel when you're out there? That's not, that doesn't apply to animals and like you said downpours yes definitely it will shut them down but guess what once that rain stops they're moving and light rain i've found especially during the rut um is some of the best hunting activity you can find as far as deer activity but um you know we could get into this a little bit more because it's not just as simple as saying hey they move there's all sorts of other things that you have to keep in mind
3: right right well yeah and i think like you said how does how does this affect me as a a person? Do I want to experience that discomfort? Um, And I think most hunters probably just bail on it, especially if you're bow hunting. Uh, My son and I were sitting in a nice dry box blind, you know, so really just getting in in and out of it was the only time we were getting rained on. Um, And the inconvenience of, well, am I getting my truck stuck? I mean, all those things play into that decision. Uh, But certainly, like you said, it's it's not an inconvenience to the animals. Uh, just It's certainly an inconvenience to the hunter. But uh, but as far as bow hunting goes, I mean, things like um, drawing your bow. Well, if you look around you, the rain's making constant noise. And what we observed, uh, even a seven-year-old was like, Dad, I just love hunting in the rain. Look at all the animals we're seeing. My take is, like, they're not as wary because they can't really differentiate the rain from other sounds
1: that's that's the thing and that's that's some of the things that i've touched on as far as hunting in the rain a couple things number one it does lessen their senses so when you think about a whitetail how do they survive sight sound and smell um sight the rain will affect them because rain uh you know coming down they're trying to eat in a food plot or even in the woods if it's just a mass crop or whatever that water is affecting how how they see the fog is going to affect how they see uh, things like that sound like you said it dampens sound. Um, turkeys kind of get a little bit. If, if you turkey hunt, you'll notice uh, during rain, turkeys will go out towards open fields because that really messes with their ability to hear when they're in the woods because there's so much noise. I have um,
3: I have observed that firsthand, and that is here's spot the on.
1: same thing. You know, it, it, it's going to affect their their hearing as far as their smell. Um, Rain will obviously wash away your human scent, but it's kind of a catch-22 on smell. Smell, uh, you know, rain can wash away your scent and be a a benefit, but also um, moisture increases a deer's chance of of smelling because it, it helps keep their epithelium and their nasal passages moist, and they can pick up scent easier that way. But if you're sitting out there in the rain for a while, that trail that you walked in on will get washed away to an extent where deer might thought might, you know, think that that scent that they're smelling is hours or older okay. than it would be if it was on dry grass. Um, kind, kind of the same concept with a bird dog, you know, on um, how they smell. It's, it's kind of similar in that regard. Um, one other thing that I would just point out is that um, for me personally, I grew up hunting almost 20 years on public land And a point that you made as far as people are uncomfortable, some of the best days I had hunting on public land was when it rained, not just because it helped keep deer more active. It helped keep more people out of the woods. So I would welcome (laughs) a a soft rain any day when I was hunting public land. But uh, one more thing is that if anybody who's listening is not an experienced hunter, one thing I say as a hunter, you need to be really aware of you have to Bring back your expectations. You have to lessen your shooting distance because if you shoot a deer in the rain, you're going to have to trail that deer probably,
2: yeah. and
1: it's really going to test your skills if you don't have, if you don't, if you're not personally experienced or you don't have a family member or a friend who can help you. Uh, blood trailing an animal that's shot during rain can be very, very difficult. So I limit my shots. I only take what I call slam dunk shots that are close, and I know that then animal's going to out quickly. And because I don't want to be sitting there trying to trail a deer when my blood trail is going to get washed away.
2: Right. That's probably the only uh, real negative factor other than you might get wet. But yeah, as far as hunting in the rain goes, that blood trail is going to disappear pretty quick. Um, We do need to take a quick break. Still a lot more to get into on this topic, though, Dan. Are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Absolutely Good deal. And that segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. That's what kept Henry and I high and dry while we were hunting in the rain. It uh, was a, you know, basically just getting in and out of the truck, walking to the blinds the only time, well, and then recovering the deer, of course. Uh, but those are the only times we were really exposed. We were nice and cozy in the big chingone from All Seasons Feeders. I mean, Henry looked around and he's like, Dad, I just love this deer blind. Well, of course you do, bud, because there's room for you, for me, for The rest of the family, if they were at the least, but uh, luckily for us, it was a guy's trip. Need those every now and again. But yeah, the Big Chingon, it's got carpet. It's got windows for bow or rifle uh, hunting. It's got cup holders, shelves, you name it. Uh, The windows have magnets on on them, so you don't even have to mess. You don't have to fiddle with anything. You just lift it up, and it, boom, attaches to the uh, side of the blind. It's the Big Chingon. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back with more from Deer and Deer Hunting's Dan Schmidt on SEI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. I don't think oh, I'm here where it hurts.
1: I'm just lucky to-
2: Texas Premium Power Sports is one of the largest pre-owned dealers in Texas. They specialize in sales of pre-owned ATVs and UTVs, many of which come fully accessorized. They also have a full service and repair center for most major brands and offer financing with a 500 credit score or better. They'll even finance parts and accessories such as high racks, roofs, and wheel and tire combos. Visit com or check them out on Instagram at Texas underscore Premium underscore Power That's TexasPremiumPowerSports.com. Dallas Off-Road is North Texas' trusted 4x4 shop, specializing in lifts, wheels, tires, exterior upgrades, and gears and drivetrains. I recently took my factory Z71 Silverado into Dallas Off-Road and they handed me back a lifted beast of a truck that will get me around the deer least or just as easily tackle a perilous mountain road on my way to a backcountry elk hunt. Dallas Off-Road owner Jeff Swope is an avid hunter and gun enthusiast, so you'll have a lot to discuss when you swing by the shop or give him a call. Visit DallasOffRoad.com for all your truck or Jeep customization needs. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas and Lewisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. Hey, Andy, I can visualize you standing on the corner of Mayberry Drive
3: In your black and white
2: Love that one there from Greenlight Pistol. Hey, Andy, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show Cable Smith right shotgun with you from the Corona Quarantine Studio it is great to be here talking outdoors with you thanks for dropping by Uh, we're going to continue discussing whitetail movement during times of precipitation with deer and deer hunting's Dan Schmidt but before we do that uh, this segment of the show brought to you by Kofi Yeager Industries and the Reaper Grip this is what Henry has been shooting off of uh, back going back to March when he first started shooting the 22-250 uh, to taking the whitetail doe this weekend. And I'm going to let Henry tell you about it in detail on next week's show. Unfortunately, due to quarantine, uh, didn't want to have him here in the studio to talk about that hunt, but uh, certainly we're going to do it in the near future. But getting back to the Reaper grip and the tripod, Uh, This thing, I mean, it clamps that rifle down so hard, it takes away all the recoil, gives the kid extreme confidence and stability so that he can make a good shot. And uh, that's what he's done um, on two occasions. And just, he was so excited to take that deer, and and you can imagine how proud I was of him. But that Reaper Grip is a game changer. Highly recommend it, and you can find it at kofiegerindustries.com. Well, jumping back into it here with Dan, I certainly appreciate you sticking around through the
3: break, my friend.
1: Thank you, Cable. I'm glad to be on with you.
3: Some other things, like clothing wise, uh, I mean, obviously, tons of companies have good uh, rain gear, which the thing about rain gear, though, is it's generally not quiet. Yeah. But going back to the rain, well, it doesn't have to be as quiet. So, something just. About- no,
1: it doesn't at all. It, it doesn't at all. Yeah, and like you said, there's tons of good stuff out there. Anybody who is really serious about it, you can. You don't have to spend a ton of money. Um, and one point that you make is, there is some stuff out there that's whisper quiet. You don't need it. If you're hunting in the rain, you're just trying to stay dry yourself. Right. and You can get away with a lot of things. And Gore-Tex is a wonderful um, uh, technology techno- technological advancement. That as long as you got something with, with Gore-Tex in it or a, a close substitute, you're going to be good.
3: Well, and one other thing I would say is, that, you know, once you have the right rain gear, uh, I like First Light. They're, they're a sponsor of the show. Um, they've got some great, great options. Um, but once you know, you're going to be dry, I think if you can wrap your mind around sitting all day in the rain, um, because what, you know, if it does start to downpour, what's going to happen is those deer are going to bed down. Right. But as soon as it lets up, even to a light drizzle, or if it just stops, boom, they're going to be on their feet moving around. Um, so those all-day sits, uh, I think people, in Texas, a lot of people, you know, rifle hunt out of blinds, and they just, that's not really a thing here. But, uh, yeah, you know, I've hunted in places. Illinois and, and other places where they look at you funny if you say, ah, you know, I don't think I'm going to hunt all day. So I highly recommend that you do. Yeah, I agree. Last year, I did more bow hunting than I ever had and uh, here in Texas, and, and the all-day sit was something that I just had to get used to. It can get tedious, and, like, mentally, I think that's it's it's a much bigger ask mentally for me than it is physically. I could sit there all day, no problem, but mentally, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm bored. That's yeah. the
1: biggest thing with all-day sits is the, is the mental, especially when you go day after day. Yeah. For me, that's, that's the hardest thing. Yeah. Sitting one day all day, not too bad, but when you're going back the next day, especially if you're on an outfitted hunt and they put you in the same spot, which I've done, uh, I've done many, many times to where I get to the point where it's like it, the mental <laughs> taxing part of it is what you got to get over. And you basically, one thing that I tell people is you got to pretend you're a football player to use that example. Um, if you're a cornerback and what they tell you when you're playing football, I was never a cornerback, but I remember the coaches always said, you have to have a short memory. If You got burned on that play before you have to have a short memory. And that's what you have to be when you're trying to hunt all day. You can't you can't dwell on what happened yesterday you have to be positive as to what might happen today and that's what's going to get you through these these all-day sits but it is like you said cable that is extremely effective tactic yeah um, no matter wh- no matter where you are um,
3: what about the actual deer movement and one thing that Henry my son and I observed and and we have uh, in Texas obviously we hunt over feeders but At our place, we have a nice winter wheat field that uh, the farmers planted um, over our right shoulder, and then we've got the feeder in front of us. So, you know, I'm checking. It's raining, and I'm checking the wheat field because deer always are out there feeding uh, in the afternoons. And I look over, and I never even saw these deer head into the wheat field, but there was three young bucks all feeding out there and then I turned back to the feeder, and there's a hog running across, uh, which I wasn't going to let my son shoot. I'm glad that he he didn't get, you know, he's seven, so he has to get real comfortable, perfect setup, everything. got a tripod that he shoots off of, and uh, the pig took off, which I'm glad it did because he ended up, you know, these does came in ten minutes later. But watching them go through the uh, underbrush, I mean, they never put their head up. They were on a beeline, and I felt like, the, the movement of the whitetail changed. Um, they were just more on like a mission and, and not, you know, how deer stop and look around every, yeah. seems like always, constantly. They never did that once. Yeah.
1: That's not, that's probably something to be said about that, and I think that kind of goes back to the analogy we talked about before is, you know, they're smart animals and the fact that they're going to move around. They're, you know, they're ruled by their stomachs, and especially if they're going to a feeding area, they're probably not going to mess around when it's raining, because of that fact, you know inherently they know that their senses are being lessened. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be they're going to be on a mission, like you said. They're going to be a mission to either eat or if whatever happens to be point A to point B, um, and which which helps you, especially when you got your scouting down and you know if you're in a travel corridor and you're in a good one, those deer are going to be coming through there. You know they're they're going to be using those trails probably more than they're going to be on a nice bluebird day because like I said, they're on a mission. They're, they're, they're going from point A to point B and they're not going to fool around getting there.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they came in on a string and he ended up uh, dropping a nice doe. I was very proud of him. Uh, That is
1: so cool that, I mean, I know, I don't even think you guys have a hunting age restriction there, do you? No, no. Which is really nice. I mean, to have a, to have your son out there at seven years old, I think that is awesome. Yeah.
3: Because, uh,
1: in some states back here, it, it's not that way anymore. But it used to be twelve. Oh wow! And they less they they shortened it now, where you can I think you can take them almost at any point. But um, you get a kid hooked at seven, I think you got a hunter for life.
3: Yeah, it's funny. Um, but we we have a duck lease as well, and so I took. Um, I also have five year old twin girls, and they were beating me up. And they've sat in the blind deer hunting, and and we've shot pigs and stuff together. Um. They loved Joe to to the deer at least with dad, but five is a little young to take duck hunting. You know, get up yeah. at four in the morning and, and do that song and dance. My my son has been quite a few times, and so the like, dad it's not fair. Henry gets to go duck hunting, so you know. Finally, I was like, okay, girls, we'll we'll go duck hunting. Take them out there, and uh, you know they're not being quiet and they're not being still. And my son looks over it to me and he says, uh. So much for this duck hunt.
1: <laughs>
3: at seven That's years awesome. old. I'm just like, eh, he gets it. So, he gets it, yeah.
1: He yeah. gets it at a very young age. That's awesome.
3: Yeah. Um but then so he got the dough on uh Saturday evening, Sunday morning. Um we had I knew there was hogs coming into that feeder, so we went back to the same spot. Plus you got the wheat field, which it's like, you know, two great options there. Um and I had two bucks that were kinda on the hit list. One I hadn't seen since November 4th. And then the other one, he was kind of, you know, every third day he would come by this feeder. Uh, and I'm looking at the wheat field, checking out some, some does that had moved into there. And this is first thing in the morning. And I turned back, and, and like I said, there's a drizzle and, and it's foggy. And it's like the buck just appeared out of nowhere. He's just standing there and uh, didn't see him come in, nothing. So going back to the movement, he, I mean, he was just came in on a string. There wasn't any slinking through the woods because you know we would have seen him. He was just there. Um, and uh, anyway, the 270 ended up pumping a hole in his heart, and he dropped right there. Got to experience that with the with the kiddo. And and then his next line is, "Ah, Dad, we just got to hunt in the rain all the time now." <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, he's going to be an expert by the time he's ten, I
3: think. Yeah. Well, certainly he's got got an earlier start than I did. In that, uh, my dad's more of a bass fisherman, so did a lot of fishing growing up, but yeah, he loves it. And he also, of course, the fact that you get to get the truck just completely covered in mud is something that uh, is appealing to a seven-year-old boy, so.
1: Awesome.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add, any other uh, gear or uh, tips about uh, hunting in the rain? I would
1: just, I would just tell people the, the biggest thing is, uh, like I said before, if you're not super experienced, um, just... Rain things back, not to use a pun, but rain things back a little bit as far as your expectations and, and as far as how far you shoot. Make sure if you're going to hunt in the rain, you know, that you're willing to pass up a shot because uh-huh. you want to make a good shot and you want to make sure that that deer doesn't go very far. But um, if and I know you guys have some great content on your your pages, but people want to check us out It's Deer and Deer Hunting website, easy deer and deer hunting dot com spelled out. And uh, find us on Facebook page. We almost have about 800,000 fans there. And uh, Twitter and Instagram, all over the place. Uh, lots of videos and especially Pursuit Channel, Saturday Night Deer Camp. We have a two-hour block of programs every week. Uh, check out our shows. We've got tons of great stuff there for anybody who loves anything deer, deer and or deer hunting.
3: Awesome, awesome. You know, and piggybacking on, on what you said about um, making sure you, you take a – a good shot. You called it a slam dunk shot. Um, I would add that, you know, generally I give deer plenty of time to expire. In this situation, that's that wasn't a thing. Like I loaded the rifle and immediately got out of the blind and just started walking to where, you know, he yeah. he fell. And good point. Uh, yeah, um, they they ended up I just, both. Being, I just
1: did that in Illinois. We just uh, we got back from Illinois. It was a gun hunt, uh, a shotgun hunt. And uh, you're going to see that on deer and deer hunting TV coming up here this year. But uh, my executive producer, David Galen and I were in the blind. We were in a box blind. Buck comes in, it's starting to rain. He comes in at about 65 yards. And I told David, I said, I'm going to heart shoot this deer. And when I did, the deer takes off and runs into the woods. And you know, with television, you're, you're shooting cutaways and you're shooting the reaction. I said, you're not getting any of that. I said, I'm getting out of this blind immediately and going over there. Cause I'm, uh, I'm not messing around. We have a, you know, a wounded animal, but he didn't go, but he didn't go but 60 yards, but that is a great point. Um, I'm not going to sit there for an hour and let the rain wash away that blood trap. Right. And <laughs> right yeah. And in that case, it worked out great because I got immediately out of deer that did not go very far and I found him and I didn't have to deal it. And then it started to open up and it started pouring, which I'm glad that I got out of that blind immediately. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the thing. Just be quick on your toes um, and just think about things in advance and, and you're going to be fine.
3: Awesome. Well, hey, Dan, I certainly appreciate the time today. Uh, enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I'm sure we will do it again sometime down the road.
1: Absolutely, Cable. I appreciate it. And to all the Lone Star fans out there, everybody have a safe and happy rest of the hunting season. All right. You do the same. All right. Thanks, man.
3: So that's going to
2: do it for our discussion on hunting and precipitation. Uh, Thanks to Dan Schmidt of Deer and Deer Hunting. Uh, That segment, by the way, brought to you by the First Light Seek storm tight jacket. Uh, This is what keeps me dry in the rain. Absolutely love it. 3.5 layer waterproof construction. It's got waterproof zippers. And you wouldn't think that something that's watertight is going to be breathable, but it is. So from hunting a light drizzle perched up there on your tree stand to the relentless precipitation that sometimes goes with those backcountry hunts. The Seek Storm Tight Jacket has you covered. You can find it at FirstLight.com. FirstLight, go further, stay longer. Up next, we're talking Bob White Quail with Brad Gabbard of Quail Tech Alliance on the Lone Star Outdoor Between Show. and almost broken bones The dream of a bubble I'll never put on I'm jaded Oh, I hate it Hey guys, Cable here for CoonStopper. If you're tired of losing corn or protein to those pesky raccoons, well, here's your solution. If you're running a traditional feeder that has, you know, those long legs that coons like to climb up and rob you blind, well, you just attach the CoonStopper to each leg. It's so easy. I just put one on a 300-pound all-seasons feeder, and <laughs> the results speak for themselves. Coons don't like it. They basically attempt one time, realize that it hurts and they're done throw in the towel just like that it's the coon stopper and you can find it at alamooutdoorworld.com
0: hey this is Chris Knight and you're listening to the Lone Star outdoor
1: show need what need, but I see down by the highway I a big cat's ground Where the quail gonna fly to Where will the rabbits run now I watch them turn all the hell one. used to be my church turn of my ground
2: Dirt's the name of that one from our very own Chris Knight, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for dropping by today as we're about to get into, I believe, what is the most nostalgic, the most gentlemanly, the most sporty of all hunting pursuits, and that is quail hunting. And a lot of that has to do with the dogs, but it truly is a, a gentleman's pastime. One that I've enjoyed immensely when I've been fortunate enough to uh, to be able to get on some wild birds and hunt behind some amazing dogs. But before we're joined by Quell Tech Alliance's Brad Dabbert, this segment of the show brought to you by Vortex Optics and their Vortex Wear lineup. They've got gear. I mean, they've got everything. T-shirts, hoodies, button-up shirts, pants, you name it. And my favorite thing, of course, is their t-shirts. They've got a lot of funny stuff, creative stuff. All pro hunting, pro public lands, uh pro meat eating, right? Uh no vegetarians working at Vortex. Uh but uh yeah, you can check out the entire Vortex wear lineup at vortexoptics.com and get this, 20% off anything Vortex wear when you use my promo code LoneStar20 when you check out. Vortex Optics the force of optics. We'll move in right along here. Uh, Let's head out west and check in with Brad Davert of Quail Tech Alliance. Brad, thanks for being here.
0: You bet, Cable. Uh, Always uh, interested to talk quail and and, um, tell about our program here at Quail Tech.
3: Which is what we are going to do today. And Yeah, go ahead. Just tell us a little bit about Quail Tech and, uh, and also your responsibilities there.
0: Yeah, um, I am actually a, a professor at the Department of Natural Resource Management at Texas Tech University,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: the Quail Tech Alliance is a, you know, research project of um, the Department of Natural Resource Management at Texas Tech, and so what it is in its structure is a system of branches uh, that spread way north of the, you know, north of the Canadian River, almost to Dumas. Uh, south to Colorado City, um, east, almost all the way to Eastland. And we have Breckenridge. And anyway, basically the rolling plains of Texas. And we have these anchor ranches. There's about 26 of them. We have some, a few new ones coming in. And, and, you know, some have uh, gone out over the last 10 years. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they kind of change. And and these are kind of our... um, canaries in the coal mine across the Rolling Plains, where we get data and look at what's going on with quail um, on these anchor ranches, and then we also do research there, and we call them anchor ranches because what we're trying to do is anchor quality habitat in those areas uh, around, and hopefully that'll rub off then on neighbors, um, and everybody will get excited about uh, uh, sustaining quail.
3: Okay. And so, you know, we've had on uh, Dale Rollins quite a few times over the years with the uh, Rolling Plains Quail Research Institute. I guess what differentiates you guys from them is just, I mean, you're talking about from Breckenridge to the Canadian River. I mean, y'all are covering a lot more area, so you have, um, all their stuff is pretty much done, I guess, on, on the same property.
0: Yeah, yeah. They have, um, you know, they have a few outside research projects, I, I believe, that uh-huh. are outside of their property, but they do a lot of monitoring on there. And um, we're we're big into, um, you know, intensive management where we're trying to um, push the demographics to, to try to get populations to grow and to, um, you know, mm-hmm basically resist to a certain extent some of these deep declines that occur.
3: So that brings up an interesting question. what What is y'all's take on trapping and, and predator management?
0: Well, you know, what we have done over the last few years is we use um, the, you know, radio transmitters to actually measure the demographics of the bird populations in response to things. So, you know, we've actually had about four years of a um, predator reduction study um, on large scale where we're, you, you know, doing 1,000-acre pastures. Mm-hmm. And on average, we've been able to increase um, the nest success about 12% um, by removing these, these uh, meso mammals. And so that doesn't sound like a huge amount, um, but when you think about it, um, it's actually a 12% increase in um, basically coveys because you can look at an individual nest as a potential covey for the next year. Mm-hmm. And so actually it, it ends up being about a so 34 35% increase in chicks on the ground at, at 21 days of age. So, um, you know, when you're talking about trying to, again, move the populations toward – Um, a a more sustainable year-to-year population uh, where there's always going to be these drops because of severe droughts, but we can limit um, basically how far we're going to drop and increase our um, rate of growth back uh, when we get good
3: weather again. Okay, and as far as the types of predators that you guys focus on, is it more raccoons and skunks, or more coyotes and bobcats?
0: Yeah, it's more raccoons and skunks. Um, coyotes really aren't, uh, for most of our studies, that big of a nest predator. Mm-hmm. Uh, bobcats can be, but for the most part, what has been removed in a lot of, in our studies are, are
3: raccoons. Okay, which is an interesting phenomenon. You know, as we is um, the farther we go removed from the trapping days, you know, uh, I mean, a raccoon pelt has essentially no value anymore. Um, And yet our agricultural practices mean there's more raccoons on the landscape. So it's, uh, you know, just look at that. Those two facts alone, that's bad news for quail.
0: Well, it really is. And, And you hear, I hear some people talk about the fact that Um, you know, removing predators is an unnatural uh, thing. But the reality is there is a a phenomenon that is believed to be occurring called mesopredator release. And what that is, um, you know, the mesopredator are these medium-sized mammals like raccoons that were once thought to be controlled by, you know, apex predators that were on the landscape. And, of course, our culture has removed those apex predators for the most part um, and so there's a, a lot of data that shows that we're having unnaturally high uh, populations of these of these predators and so you know they can actually get quite high in some areas relative mm-hmm. to prey populations and keep them uh, keep the prey population held down
3: okay Well and I think you know wide scale trapping which a you know, hundred years ago was I'm, look at one of my favorite books of all time, Where the Red Fern Grows. I mean, the kid wants coon dogs. That's his life, right? Because right, yeah. a coon pelt fetches a lot of money 50, 60, 70 years ago. And now, like, I think you, you lose money if you actually spent the time to tan it. And unless you want one for yourself or your kid, like, <laughs> it's really a pointless endeavor from a financial uh, impact. Um, but, uh, okay, so there's some interesting stuff there. What... Um, what are some of your current projects? And before you talk about that, how is Quail Tech funded? Is it through the university? Is it through private donations? Because these, you know, these projects are not cheap.
0: Well, that's right. You know, the, the research, um, when when you're doing it, especially on the large scale that we do, um, costs a, a lot of money. It's expensive. You know, the radio transmitters we put out are $200 a piece. And, wow. What we actually have to have are large numbers of those out so that we can get confidence, you know, in our, our um, inferences that we make. You know, the, the larger the sample size, the more confident we are in, in that result and that, you know, it wasn't just some accident um, because of, of a random event. So, you know, um, to get that funding, most all of our funding is um, private uh, donations, uh, or or competition for proposals with uh, foundations, and so you know, um, Park City's quail is is one of our uh, tremendous sponsors, and also um, the Cross Timbers Quail Coalition um, and um, the uh, Permian Basin Quail Coalition chapters have also donated to us. So and then we have private individuals as well um, who who donate money to us, and. You know, I'll I'll put a shameless plug in for us. Um, If uh, we're we're trying to grow our our, uh, social media, and uh, we've got a website, Uh www.quailtech.org, and we also have an Instagram and a Facebook page where we're fairly active. Um, And there are actually uh, donation uh, buttons on those where, you know, hey, you know, 200 bucks buys us another transmitter would, would be great.
3: Yeah, I remember a decade ago. I've been doing this show 12 years, and I remember when Quail Tech was founded, and I can't remember who we had on the show at the time, but uh, I've, I've gotten your newsletters, uh, which I enjoy reading since that time, so I've uh, been keeping, keeping tabs on you guys, and, and Park City's Quail and Quail Coalition, um, they're a sponsor of our show, and so we do a, you know some type of quail informative quail discussion every quarter. Certainly appreciate them facilitating this conversation, and I did see on their Instagram they wrote you um, this just Park City's Quail Alone wrote you a check for 120 grand this year.
0: Well, it actually, um, two two hundred total. Oh wow! Um, yeah, tremendous, tremendous support. That's a terrific organization, um, and yeah, they funded us uh, 120 thousand for a supplemental feeding project, um, and then eighty thousand for. A um, acoustic recording project, and and that that sounds a little weird, uh, but that actually, you know, we try to take advantage of all the technology we can, and we're actually using uh, recording technology um, and some sophisticated software that that we're teaming up with with a um, another team at Texas Tech um, to actually develop. A way to count quail coveys um, hmm. with it with uh, autonomously without uh, being there so
2: so working smarter not harder of course that does cost a little money which is why it's great that uh, Park City's quail was able to facilitate that research and you know what I want to get into what you're going to spend the other 120,000 on uh, I think it's an interesting project as well and then hit on season dates and bag limits after the break. Are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes?
0: Awesome. I appreciate it, Gable.
2: Good deal. We'll pick up the quill conversation after the break. That segment brought to you by Lone Star Ad Credit. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Still doing time in a hockey-talk prison
1: Still doing time where a man ain't forgiven
2: Hey guys, Cable here for Quiet Cat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. Quiet Cat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a Quiet Cat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me, Based out of Eagle, Colorado, Quietcat Cat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit quietcat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info.
1: Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges,
2: full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. This
0: is Stephen Ranella, and I'm the host of Meat Eater, the show on Sportsman Channel. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. So one last time, let your aim be true. On the other side, boy, I'll be waiting for you. Where the dove fly steady and the ducks come down Like a painter's vision from the cold gray clouds The
2: seasons will never Gable Smith, welcome everybody back to there. SCI's Lone Star Outdoor show. That's Boy and His Another Dog, a buddy Justin Ballerman. One of my favorite songs of all time there. You, and I wish that real life hadn't caught up to Justin because what a hell of a songwriter. Hope he's still making music. And uh, I think we're going to get on a duck hunt here this fall. It's been a couple years since we shared a duck blind together but still one of my favorite singer-songwriters out there. Uh, Thank you guys for being here as we are talking bird hunting this morning with Brad Dabbert of Quail Tech Alliance. and We're going to pick it back up with Brad momentarily. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in Marion and San Antonio. Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for well, about that long, 11, 12 years now. It's been a, a long time, and there's a reason for that. They do amazing work. They answer the phone when I call. Imagine that, a taxidermist that doesn't dodge your phone calls. You can find them at gr 8 And With that being said, uh, Brad, we talked a little bit about the donations that Park City's Quail made to your organization uh, to the tune of $200,000 split into separate projects and 120 grand of that money was allocated for your supplemental feeding program, which I'm interested to know more about. So how is that project positively impacting quail?
0: So when we're talking about quail and supplemental feeding, you actually have to be specific. You can't be general um, because there are different types of feeding. There's using barrel feeders, Uh, or stationary feeders of some kind, um, broadcasting on the road surface, um, or what we actually do, which is broadcast into the habitat. Um, And so our research um, with that uh, has actually been really successful. Um, And what we're actually able to do is raise the October to March survival by an average of 22%. Um, so that's 22% more hens in the population to start breeding um, in the spring. And what we're doing it with that is every two weeks, broadcasting um, grain sorghum into um, the, the you know the grass and the brush along along the road at a rate of about um, 300 pounds per mile. And you know that that kind of sounds expensive, but it's really not that expensive to to do a thousand acres because um, we have about three miles of road per per thousand acres usually in that research. and um, again, when you when you're talking about trying to move the populations toward you know um, a higher density and increasing the stability of it, um, that's another way we're actually able to impact the demographics of the population.
3: so twenty two percent increase, that's wonderful. I would ask, though, like, when you set up a, a feed station like that, doesn't that increase the likelihood of predators keying in on those areas? And, I, and I'm, I'm asking, I've seen it firsthand. I actually shot a bobcat coming into, a, it was a deer feeder and the, the quail were eating corn, but there was a covey of quail there. And here comes this bobcat slinking in, I mean, like crouching on the ground, slow as it could, but probably something that it did every afternoon, you know? It got oh, shot, yeah, by the way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, you, you are exactly right. And that's the point I was, was, um, was getting to is that um, there's no data to show an increase in um, uh, quail demographics of any kind, survival or anything, with stationary feeders. And that is because, yes, those predators can learn to key in on those areas. So we're actually... Broadcasting this feed into the habitat for for uh, miles.
3: Okay, um, I misunderstood you. So there's not actually. I thought you were just putting up broadcast feeders like along along the roadside, and but you're actually just driving the road and broadcasting it yes. into the. Okay, gotcha. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Oh no, no, it's kind of confusing, and um, but and that's why we have to be careful when we're talking about you know you. People make blanket statements about supplemental feed sometimes and, and things they write and, and talk about. Um, and that, uh, that is the one. And we published this in Wildlife Society Bulletin and the Journal of Wildlife Management um, and the Journal of Wildlife Biology um, have papers all on all of these things. We've actually, um, you know, an amazing thing, the first year we did that supplemental feed research, um, this was on the Four Sixes Ranch um, near Guthrie, Texas. Mm-hmm. It was actually the year of that um, terrible drought in 2011.
3: Oh yeah, and
0: and so what we were all wondering if that, the
3: quail were going to ever come back after that one.
0: Right, right. And so with with that, um, looking at reproduction, um, the birds in control areas that did not receive any of this broadcast feed. Actually, only 15% of them even attempted a single nest. Hmm. Um, and so, when you're talk- thinking of the steady uh, predation that occurs on these birds and you don't get any reproduction, you can see how they're going to decline. Um, but our birds that received uh, the supplemental feed broadcast, um, 85% of those hens attempted at least one nest. So even though our, the chick survival wasn't really good either because there weren't any a lot of insects, right. um, we still get get more reproduction out of that. And then in the following year, in 2012, um, we actually got more double and triple nesters, re-nesters, um, in those populations receiving that feed. It, it just gives them a boost to energy um, and allows them to start nesting earlier and they have a longer nesting season as compared to birds that are not getting that supplemental feed. Um, so, and, and that brings me to a, a new project that the one that uh, the Park Cities is sponsoring is, we're trying to see if by putting um, protein into the, uh, the diet during that um, late winter, early spring period when there's not much feed available, Um, if we can actually increase um, clutch sizes uh, and even egg sizes uh, a little bit in in these hens. And our early take on that looks like we may be able to increase clutch size.
3: Okay. That's encouraging for sure. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things I love about Park Cities and uh, Quail Coalition is that the money stays local. And And I mean like here in in the state. And then those chapters like uh, Cross Timbers and the, uh, was it the Odessa Permian or Permian Basin chapter? Um, Yes. You know, they do their own fundraising stuff too. And the money all stays in Texas. And um, unlike previous quail conservation organizations that kind of came and went because hunters want their dollars in conservationists. I mean, that's what we all are, hunters and conservationists. They want those dollars to benefit them in the long run, and, and, you know, it's not going to help them out if all that money is going to Tennessee or some other place. So um, I did hear, though, in talking with uh, uh, Jay Stein that, you know, they might be thinking about expanding to other states, which, again, though, the money would stay local. uh, So that would be really cool to see them uh, start to to add chapters in, in other places just based off of the success that they've had here in Texas.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, these um, these chapters are run first class. Um, the the banquets are really second to none that I've ever been around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just do a tremendous job um, fundraising, uh, getting their message out there. And then they really look at um, the science that is produced by by the individuals that, that get the money um, because they want it to go to, you know, actually – um, uh, producing a product that is is going to, you know, put more birds on the ground uh, in the future. So,
3: yeah. Which I think it's paramount because if you look at the demographic of quail hunters, it's a, it's a old man's game, you know? Um, and I think if there's more quail, well, then it's going to be so much easier to recruit that next generation of hunters. And, uh, I'm not calling you older or the, you know, the members old, but it's just, it seems like the demographic is older than say, you know, whitetail hunters or, or duck hunters or, you know, name the species. Um, uh,
0: Oh, well, I mean, that's true. You know, I've, I'm, I am getting in the older bracket. I'm an empty nester um, this year and, you know, I, I look back on my son and, um, you know, basically he's a fortunate young man to be able to have experienced some quail hunting and um and unfortunately i you know was not able to get him out as many times as i would like
3: mm-hmm. um,
0: because of you know years when when populations are down and and that really um you know really cuts those opportunities so there's there's sometimes we he loves to hunt so we had to be out hunting something that that. uh you know, I was in the deer blind, or, or, um, you know, sitting, sitting, laying in the mud for ducks, and <laughs> right? <laughs> w- wistfully thinking, I sure wish I was walking behind some dogs, um, you know, in in the uplands uh, chasing yeah. quail. So, well,
3: you know, one of my not, favorite not, things about the about quail hunting is well, the dog work. I love anything, you know, that you can get behind a good dog and hunt, whether that's bears in the mountains or ducks or uh, quail. I, I love it all. But my favorite thing about quail hunting is that you don't have to get up at the break of dawn or, or earlier like you do for all those other things.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, it really is just an event, um, and that's what I think a lot of non-hunters don't understand. It's not the fact that you're, you know, out
3: there. Um, shooting Am I getting birds. old and soft by saying that? That I like, I like it because <laughs> uh, no, because I can sleep no. later. <laughs>
0: not at all. Not at all. Well, I, I was. It was making me think of you know lots of wonderful uh Breakfast that I've had, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, but, you know, the other kind of hunting, you really don't have time for that. It's,
3: Here's a uh, granola bar. Enjoy it. Grab the a deer bar and barn. go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: but, but, uh, right. quail hunters, you know, like their, uh, like their conveniences and, and yeah. that is one of them.
3: Uh huh. A couple other questions for you. What is your favorite month to hunt quail and why? And, and, and you can, Follow that up by commenting on this is there any truth to the theory of hunting or harvesting birds earlier in the season because at the end of the season you're then hunting the most resilient individuals right
0: right well I'll you know go again go and thinking nostalgically of, of um, breakfast and some of those things you know well um, some of my really fond memories of or uh, of my grandmother cooking um, you know, fried quail with biscuits and gravy mm. uh, on Christmas morning. And so that makes me, makes me think of December quail hunts that, that I've enjoyed. And um, as to, you know, those late season quail, um, you know, we always try to, when I'm talking, tell people, okay, here's opinion versus what we consider settled science versus, um you know hypotheses, and and so really, there's a lot of um, hypotheses around that. Um, intuitively, it makes sense that birds are that are alive during that last month are more likely to be alive to nest. Mm-hmm. Um, and do we have terrific science about that? No, not really, because of the fact that it is difficult. To sort out um, the different types of mortality that that occurs with the birds, you know, hunting mortality. Does the bird shot in in November would it have survived the season? Um, you know, it, probably not. But uh, but again, that that kind of thing is is some of the things that are difficult to sort out. But you know, I think certainly from a practical standpoint, um, a a person that's trying to manage quail and their property are going to want to, um, really minimize that, um, you know, any kind of harvest that does go on during that latter part of the season, um, especially in, in more meager years.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, you've, you've quail hunted more than I have. I mean, I absolutely love it, but again, access to birds and healthy populations is a limiting factor for so many people. I'll leave it like this. If I go out and shoot five or six quail, I'm really happy. I'm not looking to shoot 15, and people want to... I've heard people complain, oh, the limit's too high. Why do you want to shoot 15 quail? Well, how many hunters are really shooting 15 quail? Isn't it more about the, the dogs and the number of coveys pointed than the number of birds in the bag at the end of the day?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Most quail hunters, or frankly, most all quail hunters I know are staunch conservationist and um, you know uh, sometimes and, and I get to sometimes with our social media people that are unfamiliar with hunters um, and unfamiliar with quail hunting and uh, can how can you put conservationist and and uh, hunting animals same, yeah uh, yeah, killing animals in the same statement and they just don't understand the, um, the care and the amount of money and, and things that goes into supporting the populations but it's not about the individuals or or individuals that certain year. So, you know, most uh, um, uh, individuals that I know are, are only shooting one bird or two out of a covey and and taking turns on a covey rise and those kind of things to limit. And, well, the
3: limiting you know, over- thing there for me is that uh, it's hard to kill more than one bird out of yeah, a covey yeah. when they're all flying in different directions. Uh, so
0: right, right, yeah, but I mean, with you know managed populations, what you what you do is we. We have um, ways of estimating you know, how, many, how many birds are in um, a particular pasture, 1,000-acre you know, pasture or something, um, and we can set then a, a limit, a percentage uh, of how many birds that we're going to take out of that population to make sure um, that we are um, keeping plenty of that population for growth for the next year.
3: Well, I, I don't really have anything else for you today, Brad. I, I certainly appreciate the conversation. I Always love uh, talking quail and and visiting with. I'm not calling you an old timer, but I've certainly been around the campfire with plenty of them. And just the 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 twinkle in their eye when they think about the of when they grew up and there were lots of birds. It's something that I wish I was there for. Always great to hear them reflect on that. What um, what is your contact info for Quail Tech, if folks wanted to look you up or possibly donate two hundred bucks to purchase one of those transmitters or um, support any of the other research that you guys have going on.
0: Um, it is uh, Brad at TTU.edu, or you know, you just Google Quail Tech and you'll you'll find us.
3: Okay. Well, I appreciate it, Brad. Hope you have a great season.
0: Awesome. I appreciate it, Gable.
3: So there he goes,
2: Brad Dabbert of Quail Tech Alliance. Great stuff there. That segment was brought to you by Lone Star Beer's new Das Beer, German Kolsch, and the new Stealth Cam Fusion Wireless Trail Camera. You can find that at stealthcam.com. Uh, man, just looking at the clock here, we got to go, got to get out of here, flat out of time. Thanks to both of our guests, uh, Dan Schmidt of Deer and Deer Hunting, and of course, Uh, Brad as well We will do it again Same time, same place next week Thanks to all you guys and gals For tuning in to today's presentation Thanks to all of our sponsors For making this show possible Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying Y'all have a great week in the outdoors
3: It's songs making this so long all the people she has done